Father, thank you so much for Glenn, for his wife Susie, for their ministry to our church, for their evident love um, for our family, for our body, um, the gift they have in counseling and, and listening and discerning and, and asking questions that do get at the heart and the deep places. And so I pray this morning as Glenn um, leads us in the Word of God and expounds the Scripture, um, and as we have panel discussion form that you would um, you would just move us to to hear your word um, to let that truth penetrate deep in our hearts and so thank you for this man and for the word today amen so if uh, the panel discussion people want to come up here go ahead and take a seat um, what we're going to do if you guys look I think they're going to put the slide up there's going to be a phone number up here on the slide text questions too and what that's going to do we found some I guess magic program that allows any of your guys' text to get funneled through this number to all four of these guys. And so even though it'll look as though Glenn is having a discussion with them as he teaches, the questions that they're going to be asking, they're going to be screening the questions from you guys, they're going to come from everyone here. So you no longer get to sit and listen, you actually get to ask questions now during this quietly through your phones. And these guys will kind of screen those questions to decide which ones and when they're most appropriate to answer. Some will be kind of duplicate, so they'll screen through those. So um, the more participation from us, the congregation, the better this will go. Otherwise, they'll just sit there and have to think of their own, which is hard to talk, be up in front of people, and think of your own questions at the same time. So I encourage you guys to participate and send questions in as the sermon goes. Each slide will have that number on it, so you guys will have that up there to look at. So... Um, Glenn's going to be reading scripture for us this morning, so if you guys want to stand for the reading, we'll get going. I have stood where you are many times, but now I'm standing here and I've certainly forgotten how this is supposed to go. So uh, if I make a mistake, please bear with me. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, reading from the New American Standard. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. I think you're supposed to. Uh, see, I told you. <laughs> Go ahead and be seated. If any of you really would like some confirmation about how forgetful Glenn is, just talk to Susie. <laughs> One of the beloved books in the, on the shelves of the Johnson home is, thank you, is uh, Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. And as far as my taste goes, that book has the best opening line of any novel we've ever read. It was the best of times, it was the, yes. And that, that's opening statement, the best of times, the worst of times, speaks very, very largely to me because it helps to, me to understand myself. Because I am a man who carries in me the best of times and the worst of times. And it seems like it's very, very hard to predict how that's going to flow in me, but I am a guy who is a walking contradiction. I am a guy who is, at one time, the best of times and the worst of times. And I suspect that all of us will find that that is, is true about ourselves. And my hope is that in the next few minutes that we will go deeper into ourselves, explore ourselves, and come out on the other end more confident in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ than ever before as being the solution to our best of times and worst of times malady. Right on? So I'm going to reread the passage of Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, and I'm going to give you a personal translation uh, and I'm going to, my translation is going to be just as literal as I can make it. Uh, even before I suppose I read the passage, I want to let you know that this is one of those verses that has been God's gift to me for over 30 years. I have spent hours and hours and hours 
reading, praying over this passage, thinking about it, talking with other people. This is one of those lighthouse verses for me. So the way I would translate it is the lamp or the oil lamp, Yahweh's oil lamp. There's no verb in that first clause, just that statement. Then the following statement, a person's spirit, okay? Yahweh's oil lamp, comma, a person's spirit. So it's just linking those two. Most of the English Bibles are going to say is. The lamp of the Lord is the person's spirit. Uh, perhaps that is the best translation. I just like to leave them uh, without a, a verb between the two of them. And then the second line follows it up with a powerful, powerful Hebrew verb. Searching out, shining light. And our English Bibles are going to sanitize the final statement uh, and say something like the innermost being or innermost parts. Uh, they're just trying to make things nice and acceptable. Whereas the literal translation of the Hebrew text would be searching light or shining light in the dark rooms of the stomach. Okay? Prepare yourselves. There is a connection between it was the worst of times and the dark rooms of the stomach. And this text, by the way, you've already heard this from me, but anytime you want, please cut in. If I don't see you, you just cut in. If you raise your hand, that's fine, because I really do want this to be a uh, kind of like a glorified discussion here. So you get to cut in anytime. Okay. Josh, Letitia, Laura, and Roberto. Okay. <laughs> So we're going to begin this traveling through this, this particular verse at the last point. What on earth is a dark room of the stomach? The word, the word room occurs five times in the book of, of Proverbs. And what I want to do is for a moment here is just expand it a little bit. Uh, first of all, dark rooms of the stomach are where you and I suppress. Suppressing is trying to put a lid on some powerful force to try to hold it down. Imagine yourself going to Yellowstone and trying to put a lid over Old Faithful. Suppression is about that. It is trying to stop, trying to tamp, trying to cover a force that is very, very powerful, very undesirable for us to be present in our, in our life experience. When we erect, when we step into our dark rooms of our stomach, we are moving into pain. Pain. I'll say it a third time. Pain. That we cannot handle. That we do not want to handle. We are stepping into the place where shame and fear and anxiety, where crap reigns so powerful that it seems to undermine us, it seems to attack us, it seems to threaten us so much that we are just freaking out about the possibility of facing it. Make sense? Okay. Now, dark rooms. The subject of darkness occurs in the second verse of our Bible. Okay. In the beginning was the word, excuse me, that's John. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. And then you get in this parenthetical statement that talks about the, this existence as it was. And one of the statements is, it says, darkness was over the face of the abyss, or darkness was over the face of the deep. And please rest assured that this darkness, this parenthetical statement in the second verse of the Bible is trying to warn us that darkness is chaotic. Darkness is scary. Darkness is something to be avoided. Darkness is more than a, 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 a phenomenon of human existence. Darkness is scary. And so as you get to the third verse of Genesis, then the first act that God does, he says, let there be light. And then 
The text says that God, in his beauty and in his creative wisdom, says, I am now going to separate. And as he uses this word separate, badal in Hebrew, if you're interested in such things, the doctrine of sanctification, the separation between light and dark, good and evil, starts to occur as this early stage of creation becomes something that is ordered and sequenced for the glory of God. And our God is a God who says, watch out for the darkness because you cannot handle it. Okay? I know that and I want to give you a very good world. So I choose to separate and I choose to teach you to discern the separating skill. Okay? Ah, thank God for Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But along comes chapter 3 of Genesis, the fall into sin. And as human beings fall into sin, then darkness multiplies. And it multiplies. And it becomes like buttercups. Or it becomes like cancer. It squeezes everything out. Okay? And centuries of later, later, the wisdom writer in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27 says, Lamp of the Lord... A man's spirit searching out the dark. Well, of course, it's the same darkness. It's that, that chaotic stuff that you and I cannot handle, but that, towards which we gravitate. Yes? Okay. Now, so I've exposed just a little bit about dark. What about dark rooms? What's a room? What is a room of the stomach? Okay. Anybody ever taken anatomy and physiology and learned anything about the dark room of the stomach? I don't think so. Okay. In the poetic world of this wisdom book, God wants us to think in terms of certain places. Places like in a house. Rooms. And so he uses this word room and he attaches the adjective dark. Dark rooms. First thing that I want to do is call your attention to, really what I'm going to do now is travel with you just a little bit through the doctrine of darkness, of dark rooms, excuse me, in Proverbs. Okay, the first passage that I want to take you to is Proverbs 18, verse 8. Okay, and it says, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels, and they go down into the dark rooms of the stomach. Okay, the idea is, hey, did you know such and such about so-and-so? Hey, come on over here. Let me tell you. Okay, this is really cool. This is going to be on the headlines tomorrow. Let's talk about it. Gossip. And when we start interesting ourselves in sucky news about other people, the ears just sort of perk up. And people gather around, and we have what's called a gossip session. Now, I have a question for you, a really stupid one. Okay. When you and I get together to gossip, are we gossiping out of that virtuous part of us, that part of us that is full of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Doesn't even require any kind of conversation, does it? Okay. The purpose of gossip is to appeal Okay, maybe this question is more meaningful. Do you think that we gather to gossip to appeal to our shame side or to our pride side? I think it's the pride side. Okay, so with this proverb is opening up this world. Hey, let's get together and let's have a party and let's, let's talk in such a way that you and I can feel better about ourselves at their expense. Okay, and so we're just... And it's so cool because, Roberto, you can just feel like you're, you're good. And I can feel like I'm good because we just knocked them down a few notches. And it's, it's a tasty morsel, says the text, because we like it. See? And the text here is saying, but Roberto, Glenn, watch out. Because what you are doing, the way you are relating, the way your souls are connecting, is this is taking you directly into dark rooms of your stomach. Got it? 
Now let's look at the other side. We've just talked a little bit about this taking us into the pride side. Now let's take a look at whispering through the dark side. So I'm going to ask you to turn left in your Bibles, if you happen to open up your Bibles, and let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 27, 28. And I have it on a piece of paper here, so I won't read, or I won't turn my Bible. But you are going to hear the word, same word that is translated in Proverbs 1 as whisper. Here it's going to be translated as grumble. And this is a part of the ambiguity of, of the translators have to experience, okay? So there's something in the world of grumbling and something in the world of whispering that is alike, says the text. And of course, I think you can figure it out because, well, I'll just read the text. You grumbled in your tents, Moses is speaking to Israel, and said, folks, this is after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. This is Moses who has dealt for a long, long time with his people just before they cross, into the, cross the River Jordan into the Promised Land. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord, you ready for some bad doctrine? The Lord hates us. Where on earth is that coming from? Okay, the Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Do you think that we're looking at some bad thinking here? Okay, question. Do you think that dark rooms produce good thinking? The answer is a very, very powerful negatory. Okay, down in those dark rooms where shame and pride prosper, thrive, down in those dark rooms, good things don't come out of you and me. They didn't come out of these, these folks. The Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to, kill, to destroy us. Where can we go? See, we're not safe when we're operating in the dark rooms. Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. This is talking about the 12 spies who came back and said, hey, there's giants all over the place. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. Can you hear the shame party going? Okay. We even saw the Anakites there. Good night. So dark rooms from Proverbs chapter 7 are where people get together and they, and they gossip about others in order to build a pride. And the pride functions and it thrives and it builds a certain kind of person. And dark rooms also thrive in the world of shame when we feel so small, so inadequate, so insecure. The dark rooms of the stomach are the holding tank for shame, pride, fear, anxiety in your heart and in mine to thrive. Okay? So I hope that you're getting a better feel for this Proverbs 20, 27. Yahweh's lamp, a person's spirit, shining light on all of the dark rooms of the stomach, shining light down there where your pride, where your shame, or pride and shame are killing you. Okay, one more verse in Proverbs about dark rooms. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 27, the final verse in a chapter where a father or a mentor is talking with a young man about sexual ethics. And at the conclusion of this passage, he says, hey, young man, son, beware of the loose lady. Beware of sexual promiscuity, of ethics, sexual ethics that are not helpful for you. And then here is the closing statement. Her, referring to the sexually promiscuous woman, and it's just as good just as easily be referring to the sexually promiscuous man, her house is a highway to hell. Now, get ready for this next word, next clause. And I'm going to substitute in my translation, leading down to the dark rooms. Many of your Bibles are going to say dark chambers or chambers of death, hell. You see how death and hell are, are, are linked together? Okay. Now, what I want to establish is that Proverbs is teaching us a doctrine of dark rooms. 
There is a sense in which every one of you, all four of you, have a dark room in your stomach, and it is the center where your unique variety of pride and where your unique variety of shame you successfully, most of the time, squash it down. Where most of the time, you manage to navigate the waters of life, getting along well enough. It's down there, it gets you, it drives you, but it manages to stay in you in such a way that it remains somewhat inaccessible, somewhat hidden, somewhat secret. But it's killing you. Now, what this last verse does is that it tells us through the verb descending. That's a, that's a linear movement verb, is it not? Okay. There is a pipeline, there is a ladder, there is a descent from the dark room of your stomach to the dark rooms of hell, of Sheol. And this wisdom book is saying, friends, we all taste the best of times and the worst of times. We all carry around in us a part of us that is a taste of hell itself. That's you and that's me. Pretty bleak. Do you agree? Agree? Okay. Well, gosh, let's move into some better news then. Okay. The first clause starts off with lamp. It says it's Yahweh's lamp, and it says it has the capacity, as all lamps do, to shine. It has the, the capacity to shine into dark places. Okay? Now, I thought real seriously. Matter of fact, I even went on Google Images to look for a picture of, of, of a stomach you know, from the inside. Boy, it wasn't very pretty at all. <laughs> it's because I thought of trying to put a, a, film, a picture up here of a candle shining in, the, in, a, in a stomach, and it was, it was really gross. So rather than that, think of you walking down into a cave. I've been in a cave a couple times. Real, real quickly, it gets really dark. And that, I tell you, that candle, that light, that flashlight, it's a really, really good thing. And the text here is saying that God, in some way, lamp of the Lord person's spirit. God has created you just as he did in Genesis 2-7 when it says that God formed the, the clay and then he breathed into man the nishmat, the spirit of life. Okay. Proverbs 20-27 picks up that same noun, that same word spirit, and says it builds on the, the statement in, back in Genesis 2. And it says, that spirit that he has breathed into you gives you the capacity to somehow connect with him, the lamp, so that you can walk, so that you can travel. Okay. Would you give me your hand, please? In a hand-in-hand -hand relationship with God. So that we can travel in a community of two probably larger than that but you and me with God going into ourselves into that unacceptable place into the pipeline to, uh, to hell that's the good news okay. this is wisdom literature the wise person puts his or her hand in God's hand and he walks down into the cave or into the stomach. I do not suggest that we try and do this ourselves. I myself, I'm not strong enough to do that. I doubt that you are. But I heartily recommend that you and I become people who put our hand in God's hand and say, Father, I'm scared to death, but I want to go into myself with you. Any responses so far? Wow. I have a question. Okay. 
This is Laura, and Laura is a really good question asker. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Um, I was making the connection that we are God's lamp, Mm -hmm. that we have the capacity to shine. Is that what you were getting at earlier? (laughs) That's a good good way of putting it, Laura. I tend, I'm more comfortable. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm more comfortable to say that God created you in such a way that his lampness, his lightness is in you. Does that make you light? If you go into the New Testament, it certainly does. And maybe that's here too. I'm not sure. Okay. And then you lost me a little bit when you started talking about um, us taking God's hand and going in together and how that came out of the text of okay. those two it's, it's, it's the way that the, the text says, lamp of the Lord, spirit of man. It's just like the two are designed to work together. That, that's the point that I'm trying to make. And I think from the way that the two are designed to work together, it's talking about synchrony here. It's talking about community. God's saying, I'm not going to do this alone. Uh, I'm going to do a ton. I'm going to do everything you cannot do. But you, if you're a wise person, you will walk into yourself with me. That's, that's, does that make sense now? So when you say lamp of the Lord, we aren't necessarily the lamp of the Lord. It's sort of, that's... I think so. It's more like the lamp of the Lord is within you. It is available. But it doesn't necessarily... There are times when it does not function unless you cooperate, unless you move with him. I think that's the idea of the text. Okay, that's a good question. Thank you for for drawing that out. Anything else? Okay, if anything does, cool. And if nothing flows, that's cool too. What are solutions? What are solutions that Proverbs gives to the problem of these dark rooms that are so damaging for all of us? One of the solutions is found right here. The solution is walk with the Father into yourself, asking the lamp of the Lord to shine the light in with its power to illumine the, the things that we are unwilling to face. That is a step in movement. That is a movement towards wisdom, towards freedom, towards growth in Christ. That is one of the solutions that the book of Proverbs gives us. The second one is so cool. Glenn, yes. we have a question. Um, it says, how can I trust myself to walk into myself if my darkness is what the problem is? Mm-hmm. Great question, isn't it? I think the answer is we can't and we shouldn't. Uh, my own experience, as you'll hear in a few minutes, is that I wasn't able to do this uh, on my own. I tried, I tried very hard, uh, but I was unable to do this without the Lord's help. It's one of the reasons why it's so beautiful to me and so important to proclaim to you folks that I do not think that a single person here is strong enough or capable enough to do this kind of, of spiritual walking alone. That's why I'm so grateful for the lamp of the Lord being what leads this. Okay. Do you think I answered the question adequately? Proverbs chapter 20, verse 30 is another passage where dark rooms shows up, dark rooms of the stomach. Okay, now I'm going to read it, and before you folks start freaking out, uh, because you are very, very likely, some of you are to start saying, oh my gosh, Glenn's going to go on a rant about, about corporal punishment of children, and uh, I suppose I could, but I would like to keep my head, so I'm not going to do that right now. The text says, blows and wounds scrub away evil, and beating purges the dark rooms of the stomach. Okay? Now, I don't like that verse. (laughs) I do not like that verse when I think about Glenn Johnson being the dad of Adam and Haley. When When I think about... 
I just, that doesn't resonate with the way that, that I mean, blows, wounds, beatings. Uh, but I just don't think that we're being asked to apply this verse to parenting. I think we're being asked and encouraged to apply this, this verse to human beings who are being riddled, who are being infested, who are being beaten up and dying in certain ways because of the power of shame and pain that they are successfully or unsuccessfully suppressing. Okay? Now here's what I think is so cool. The book of Proverbs is not meant to be interpreted as one book in 66 books. Every single book in the Bible is meant to be interpreted in light of the whole. Okay? Got to. It's not one book among 66. This is one book with 66 chapters to it. Okay? And what is so wonderful to my taste here is that I believe that the, the, the wisdom writer here is talking to us directly about our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, yes, I will take the blows. I will take the stripes. I will take the wounds. I will suffer the pain for the person who is beating himself up, killing him herself with his or her dark rooms. And so solutions, what are some solutions for our issues that are so unspeakable, so ineffable? One of the solutions is grab hands with God and walk into yourself. Another solution is thank God that our Lord Jesus Christ chose to do the heavy lifting, that which we are incapable of doing and continuing on in a saving relationship with the Father. So let us run to Jesus Christ for the salvation, the, the freedom that he provides us, and the other is run with Jesus Christ into ourselves, taking his death and resurrection into that lamp and running into ourselves in the power and the freedom and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, taking on darkness in ourselves. That's worth getting excited about, is it not? Yeah. Okay. Glenn, yes. could you give a practical example of what going into ourselves with yes. God looks like? Yes, and that's going to be the second half of the talk. Okay. Because okay. Uh, I'm going to try to move from theoretical to practical in just a moment. Okay, good question. Okay, so God wisely invites us to journey with him into ourselves. You see that, that point make sense to you? That's a part of God's wisdom. God invites us to experience him bringing light into the darkest corners and nooks and crannies of your soul, mine as well. God invites us to worship Jesus for suffering so intently, so intensively, so comprehensively for us. Some theological foundations. Now, I've taken a few minutes to try to unpack one verse in the book of Proverbs with its surrounding theology. Now it's time to follow Laura's lead and get practical. So I want to tell you about at least one of the dark rooms of Glenn Johnson's stomach. Okay. Uh, Micah, would you flip forward to that, that uh, slide with, with the Alaska picture? Okay, my, the dark room of my stomach begins long before I was born. That's a picture of a place where I've never been. I doubt that you've been there either. Anybody here ever been to St. Michael? Okay, it is not a big place, and it is not anywhere close. This is on the coast of the Bering Sea, not too terribly far from Nome. This is out in the middle of nowhere, okay? And... <laughs> In the 1890s, I think, there was an old Finn by the name, uh, and I think he probably was pretty old, <laughs> uh, by the name of Axel Johnson. And he was a uh, shipsman, some kind of maritime engineer or something like that. And during the Alaskan gold rush, he uh, jumped ship there at St. Michael or Nome or someplace, wound up in St. Michael, 
And so that's where he landed. Meanwhile, he abandoned a family uh, back in Finland. And so I have cousins in Finland whom I've never met. Next slide. I'm going to give you another little picture of St. Michael. Big, isn't it? Just a little bit to your left is the Bering Sea. I mean, it's just right there. St. Michael is a good 30 feet from the Bering Sea. There isn't a hill anywhere. Any breath of wind just freezes, just blows through and freezes you. If Dante is right about hell freezing over, this is hell. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that's where my dad was born. He was the son of Axel Johnson. I'd already told you that he left a family in Finland. And when he arrived in Alaska, uh, he, I don't know if he married or if he cohabited with an Indian woman, uh, but he raised a family with this woman and she died. And uh, that's about all I know about that. Okay, next slide, please. <laughs> this is a picture of six Komkoff sisters. They're from Kotlik, Alaska, about 100 miles or so from St. Michael. One of the two on the right is my grandmother. Okay, I don't know which one. I never met, never met any of my grandparents. But what I want you to know is that this was taken evidently not long from my grandmother's wedding. In that picture, she's 13 years old. My grandfather... I don't know how old he was, somewhere between 35 and 40. Okay, he was on his third marriage, on his third family. Okay. Doesn't this sound beautiful? I think you're going to squirm just a little bit more when I tell you how she became his wife. My grandfather won her playing poker. He never asked her, okay? He was playing poker with my grandmother's dad, and my grandmother's dad lost. Cool, isn't it? Can you get some idea that there might be a dark room starting to uh, form up? Okay. So my dad was born there in St. Michael, grew up there for a while. And now let's move to another slide, another part of my family background. Okay. The lady on the left is my grandmother. That old fellow standing up is my grandfather. Take one look at that picture and tell me that... What do you see? What does that look like to you? Does that look healthy? Do you think... Hey, whiz. Okay, I'm going to give you one other wonderful bit of information. The lady on the left died when she was 42, with her liver just completely shot because of alcohol. Okay. Getting a picture? Okay. My father was the third of five, and I just don't think that my dad grew up in the best of environments. Good enough for that one? Okay, let's go to another slide, please. This is a picture of my other grandparents. Never met them either. My grandfather, they lived in Ballard, 1216 Northwest 70th. And my grandfather, Paul, here, abandoned my grandmother at some point and went over uh, east of the mountains and started another family over there. And so my grandmother, Anne, uh, and her daughters... Uh, and their son kind of survived. That's what I hear, what I know about it. So I trust that you can see that from both sides, uh, in terms of my background, man, there's a train wreck starting to happen. Okay. Can you feel that? Okay. Next slide. This picture is a 1949 picture taken in Homer, Alaska. The guy on the left is my dad. My dad was 
what in Alaska is called a Siwash kid. Anybody familiar with that name? Okay. We have racial slurs all over the world. There have pejorative comments that are designed to keep people in their places, designed to separate, designed to hurt. Okay. And in Alaska, one, particularly in that part of the, of the 1900s, a Siwash kid was a kid, a child of an Indian or of an Eskimo. Okay, and it is, and it was not a nice word. It's one of those words that in, in bars, people fight over. In schools and playgrounds, kids fight over that one. Okay, my dad was a Siwash kid. A little more information about him. Uh, I'm going to run out of time. So. One of the things that's interesting to me is that my mom and my dad got married after World War II. I only 10 years ago learned that my dad uh, had been married previously. He married an English woman during World War II. I only learned this a few, a few, not too many years ago. My mom and my dad never told me about that. Now, I had a good, good childhood. I had a healthy, relatively healthy relationship with my mom and dad. But the guy on the left, you already know that he's a half-breed. Okay? And that in Alaska, in that particular day, being a half-breed meant something negative for him. Okay? And you already know that he grew up in a, relative, a family that was dysfunctional enough just by virtue of the age differenti differentiation between his mom and his dad and his mom's alcohol issue. Okay. And so he marries after World War II, and the lady he marries is from Seattle. That's the wedding right there. There were another five or six people. My family was not a Christian family, didn't grow up, they didn't go to church. I didn't go to church when I was a kid. But there's not a single person there from Seattle to be present at my mom's wedding. Okay. Whew. What on earth is going on? Okay. So these two marry, and they have a one child. They wanted to have more, never, never took. So along comes Glenn. I have a happy life. I'm a I'm living out in the sticks in this place called King Salmon, Alaska. I've lived in Bethel. I was born in Juneau. Happy life, happy boy. Uh, everything is pretty much hunky-dory. When I moved from King Salmon or Knack-Knack, my first grade, and in the middle of the second grade, we moved to Juneau. We moved to this big town, 10,000 people. <laughs> and about, somewhere about that time, I graduated from playing cowboys and Indians uh, to playing baseball. I, I was played baseball one day in the summer. I came home and told my dad about, about playing baseball. Okay, within three months, anybody here ever been to Juneau? Okay. <laughs> if you go out to the airport, you will now see an FAA installation right just to the north of the airport. Well, back in the 1960s, I think it was, uh, my dad, who was the station manager of the airport, got together with, with Bill Murphy, who was the city manager, and the, within the span of two months, they had turned a bunch of muskeg into a best baseball field in Juneau. Okay, that is not accidental. That is not random. My dad saw me pick up a baseball bat, heard me say I enjoyed it. Three months later, there's a baseball field right across the street. Okay. My dad, we had this really cool driveway with a kind of a big Y to it. My dad filled it in with concrete, put up a big telephone pole. We had the best four-on-four -four basketball situation available with floodlights. We could play basketball all day long, all year round. Okay. Are you getting the idea that sports has something of an influence in my life? Okay. And it's very largely, at least in part, it's because my dad made it possible. He built the baseball field, he built the basketball court, and Glenn Johnson's life just grows up. Okay. Now, now it's time for me to make a confession. I'm going to fast forward from Juno days, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, to Glenn Johnson is now 32, something like that. Not living in Juno, he's married, has two kids. 
uh, living in the capital of Brazil, Brasilia. Just gone through three years of learning language and just doing all kinds of hard, hard work to learn, acclimating to the culture. Now, happily married man, great kids, great profession, great career. And at this particular point, I got emotionally tangled with a young Brazilian girl. How on earth did that happen? I was, I loved Susie. I loved my kids. Had no interest in abandoning her. Had no interest in being an adulterer. None. I would have lost everything. But I got emotionally connected. Okay, that shook me up. And I had to ask myself the question, how on earth did I get here? So what I've done is I've taken you now from about the third or fourth grade back up into, the, into my mid-30s. And what I now want to do is unpack how the dark rooms started shaping me to get me to that point. Yes? Okay. So I am a guy who is... You're going to think I'm arrogant here with, with, with this statement. I am a man who is intelligent. Wasn't that cool to say that? Okay. I've been a straight A student ever since, as long as I can remember. Okay. I was scored real high SATs. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. I, I though I'm not, not a high class person, uh, I had a scholarship to go to one of the elite universities of, in our country. Okay. I, I have two master's degrees. I have a PhD. I read four languages, speak two, read a lot of books. I'm, I think it's fair to say I'm an intelligent guy. Now, now let's bring me down, let's whack me. Here's the truth. I am an intelligent fool. I'm way more of a fool than I am intelligent. Okay. Why? Well, I just told you why. With my vast, vast intellectual acumen, I just, well, even emotionally, I committed adultery. How on earth does a man do such a foolish thing? Okay. You get it? My intellectual prowess did not help me at a time when I was most needy. Why? Because I, more than being intellectually competent or intellectually incompetent on the moral side, I am far more of a fool than I am a bright person because my brightness doesn't not necessarily take me to the cross. My brightness, my intelligence doesn't take me to the virtues of our, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? On top of that, my intelligence has never made me happy. It's something that I have relied upon. I've counted on it to make me important, to make me secure, to make me significant. But it has never served me. Okay? But I have stuffed that. I have pursued thing, my, the intelligence piece as a means to make myself feel better about myself. So Glenn Johnson is far more an intelligent fool than just pure intelligent. And the best way to describe me is that I am a fool desperately in need of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to make me happy and in order to move me towards virtue. What did you hear me say? That, uh, I heard you say, Glenn, that no matter mentally, your mental capacity couldn't save you. It failed you in many aspects of life. Yeah. Good. Thank you, Josh. Anything else? Okay. He's right. Yeah. Good. Um, just something I heard you say, I think 
even, even knowing, experiencing your past, and then having some form of success, success doesn't actually propel you to be continually successful. Yes. So even if you got out of it in some way, you're still vulnerable in other ways. Yeah. That's kind of what I heard. Yes. And just to be a little bit more precise, Roberto, not just vulnerable, foolish. Yeah. I mean, I'm amazingly good at, at stepping into foolishness. Okay? Okay, not only am I an intelligent fool, another part of my dark room is that I am an overachieving failure. Okay? It's absolutely true. Achievement. Much of my achievement, when I grew up, I was a student and I was an athlete. I'm a mole. I did nothing else. There was nothing else to do. It was, my life was about sports and books. Okay? And so I was a high achiever academically. I was a high achiever sports-wise. So I have won state championships. I have lost state championships. I have lost three to two a national championship. I was... I played in a a very high-level baseball program in the Pac-8 at that particular time. And uh, I played in the national championship. I was invited to play for our country in the Pan American Games in Nicaragua. Uh, I was a high achiever, okay? I chose, my dream had always been to be a professional baseball player. Even though I loved sports, or studies, the only dream that sustained me during my childhood boys was to be a baseball player. Okay, now, gosh, this makes me... As I was graduating from college, I I was drafted, and so I, I was called by the San Diego Padres, and I was asked, would you please sign and a part of my dark room is the, what happened the day after I said no to them. Okay. Now, my, t- my saying no had a lot to do with my burgeoning faith in Jesus Christ. I was not strong enough at that particular point in my life to handle all of the sexual immorality that was going on in the baseball world. And I wanted to marry Susie, and I wanted to be uh, a man of integrity with her. And so I had to make a choice, and I made a sound choice to step away from baseball in order to be a happily married man who was also a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay? If I had that to do over again, I might have done it differently today, but I didn't have that maturity then. Okay? Now, the, one of the thoughts that came into my head when I said no to San Diego was, whew, I'm glad my dad is dead. Now, I had a good father. I owe much to my father. I am not ashamed of having Bill Johnson as my father. I'm grateful, I'm blessed, I have benefited from him greatly. But I'm now going to tell you two stories about him. I don't know if I was 12 or 13, We came down from Alaska, went to San Francisco. My dad was a San Francisco Giant fan. He listened to Giant games on the shortwave radio. I grew up hearing about San Francisco Giants. And so dad took me alone, without mom, just dad and kid, to San Francisco to watch a three-game set between the Giants and the Dodgers. Wow! Okay? I mean, that was a rivalry. That was big, big deal. I was a kid who had baseball cards. I... I knew the Giants, I knew the Dodgers, and so I am at Candlestick Stadium, and Dad, we went to the Bayshore Motel, still exists, okay? And, and I got to swim in the swing pool all afternoon, and then we went, walked over to Candlestick Park, and it was a game, man, yeah. I'm gonna give you a few details here. Juan Marichal was pitching against Sandy Koufax. <laughs> ah! Okay? I mean, life does not get any better for a 12-year-old boy from Alaska who gets to go down to Candlestick. And I was, we were seated along the third base line, and I was the happiest camper that you can ever imagine. My dad was my hero. He had taken me down there. And that night, during that ball game, my dad got very drunk. Okay? My dad was a good man. When he drank, he usually got drunk. 
when he got drunk, I felt shame. I felt terror. I wasn't afraid of him. I was, but there was, there was no physical abuse, nothing like that. But I just tasted what it was like watching my dad stagger. And on that particular night, he got so foul-mouthed, so abusive there on the third base line that the people around were looking at us. Okay? And my joy in that Giants-Dodgers game just... Okay? And I have no idea. Someday I'm going to go back to Candlestick and I'm going to walk from Candlestick to Bayshore Motel. Because dad was, is one of those nights where he had drunk way too much. And so my dad was a big man. I'm a 12, 13-year-old kid. I had to support him as we walked back to the motel. And I have no memories after that, of that time. None mem- no memories whatsoever. It's just wiped out. Okay. Now I'm going to share something pretty graphic. Shortly, now uh, I did, wasn't able to put all this together. This took me years to put together what I'm about ready to share it with you. Shortly thereafter, I started developing rather compulsive sexual fantasies of a violent nature, fantasies about girls that I did not like. Okay? So I became a kid who was a high achiever, well known for things, but in my inner world, I was just this cesspool of obsession stuff. Okay. It took me years, years to figure out that this dark room, this something that I was unable to control, was the fruit of St. Michael. It was the fruit of that union. Okay. It was the fruit of that Siwash kid and the struggles that he had. It was the fruit of Candlestick in Bayshore Motel. All of it came together because there was just stuff going on inside me that I could not handle. And so the only thing that I could do was to suppress it and stuff it. And it came out and it leaked in different ways. Okay. What did you hear me say? Wow. I heard you say that there was a family shame that you experienced, shame from your father, um, and a lot of the, the, how you dealt with that came, came throughout with, with pain and, and sin. Yeah. Yeah. Letitia? Um, I also hear that um, there's generations of this, yes. right? Yes. So it's started with your grandfather mm-hmm. and what was rooted in him, the sin mm-hmm. that was rooted in him moved to your father, even in, in his drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, just that being passed down from, mm-hmm. from the generation to generation. Yeah. Okay, it's about time for me to wind this thing down. When in that process did you become a Christian? I became a Christian... And how did that come about? Yeah. Thank you, Patsy. I became a Christian when I was 18 years old, yeah, 17. I uh, didn't grow up in the church, and I had a really weird conversion, uh, at least it seems to me. Uh, I was in the Swedish hospital for having some knee surgery, would have been scope surgery today. I was all trussed up and stuff uh, in, in Seattle here, and I had the wonderful 17-year-old masculine experience of not being able to pee and having to pee very badly. And, and so a nurse had to come in and help me pee. That's fairly important because I had the first sort of thought along these lines that, good night, Johnson, two little incisions in your knee, you can't walk, and you can't even go to the bathroom without a lady helping you. You just don't have control of your life. First time I'd ever thought anything like that. And that particular night is in April 1968. Ooh. Anybody alive then? <laughs> okay, there's a, a full moon out. I'm over there on, on the hill up there. And there is a thunderclap in the corner of my room. There was a patient in the room who heard nothing. And I, out of this thunderclap came a voice saying, in this terrifically deep bass voice, saying, Glenn, you are going to be okay. Nothing more than that. Nothing theologically sophisticated. Just, 
you are going to be okay. And I was just, I couldn't move, but I was, you know, just sort of trembling because I had no doubt in my mind that God existed. I mean, I'd never thought about God before. And, uh, and then three nights later, I'm back home in Centralia, and there's a guy who knocks on the door, and uh, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know him. He's a fellow who had followed me sports-wise, and so he, he came to my home and asked if he could share this little booklet with me. For those of you who are older, it's the Four Spiritual Laws from Campus Crusade, called Crew now, and would have meant nothing to me except for the experience that I'd had three days prior. First page says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So that's interesting. Uh, I just had this experience with God. So I just walked through, I became a Christian. I became a Christian without knowing beans about God. And I've spent the rest of my life working out what is God like, okay? And a big part of my working out is going into this stuff, okay? Good question. Now, here, I believe, is the essence of one of my dark rooms. Glenn Johnson, you exist to fulfill your father's unfulfilled dreams. Glenn Johnson, you're not good enough to fulfill your father's unfulfilled dreams. Glenn Johnson, you are a failure. Glenn Johnson, that is unacceptable. So I spent, I've spent much time being an athlete and being a student trying to use athletics and academics to work out those foolish goals. And I'm here today saying, you're like me. Your story, the specifics of your foolishness are different from mine, but you're just as much of a fool as I am. You are just as incompetent competent as I am. We are all in the same boat. Some of us are down and outers. Some of us are up and outers. All of us are outers. Okay? Desperately in need. Desperately in need of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to give us security, salvation, significance, and virtue. Right on? Now, I'm going to close, and I'm going to give you guys, you guys have been so calm. I have three questions for you, through you. I could give you some applications, but I, I think that's not the best way to do it. Uh, I want to close with some questions. You are not obligated to answer them right now. You are not obligated to answer them right You're not obligated to answer them at all. Why? In something so important as your spiritual growth, something so important as shining light on your dark rooms, whatever they are, why did God choose to say, I'm going to do the most important, I'm going to do the stuff that you cannot do, but I will not take you into your dark rooms yourself, you must go with me. Why did he create things, life to be like that? Now, I have my own answers, but I'm asking, I'm suggesting that this question is so important that it doesn't make that much difference what I think. I'm suggesting that that question is so important that you are the one that must answer that, okay? Because please do not forget, please do not forget, the dark rooms of the stomach are a pipeline to hell. I won't say that again. I'm now going to enter into an area where I myself am unable to answer the question. What about people who are followers, genuine followers of Jesus Christ, but who refuse to go into their dark rooms? Okay? I can't answer the question. I don't know how to deal with that one. But I do know that it is foolish to not walk with the Father. I do know that it is damaging. I can't take it to its end result. But I am suggesting that God gives you so much freedom, you don't have to go in if you don't want to, but you may not choose the consequences. Okay? Please summon the virtue, the courage, the vulnerability to walk into yourself with the Father. But my question is, why would he create it that way? Okay? Ready for another question? Good. You're going to get it anyway.
Patsy, I, that's, that's a cool answer, but I'm not going to respond. I'm just going to let you, you guys stew on that one. Okay. Okay. Your Lord Jesus Christ and mine, nothing about his death and his resurrection is random. Do you agree with that? It's, it's all sequenced. Okay. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit knew that he was not, Jesus was not only going to die the most shameful death that the Roman Empire had available in its quiver. The Father and Son and the Holy Spirit also decided that our Lord Jesus Christ was going to die without a stitch of clothing on. He was going to die up there naked. What does Jesus' dying naked on the cross, how does that empower us to become vulnerable to walk into our dark rooms? Get the question? Get the question? Okay. You have the resources in Jesus to go into the scariest places of your life. You have the resources in your God. Okay. You also have the freedom to not go, but you may not choose the consequences. Please yell out to God and say, God, I want your hand to walk into yourself. The process will be scary. It will be. Dark rooms are a scary place. Please walk. Okay. Oh, I forgot the third thing I was going to share. Okay. One or two of you, would you just give some general response, please? What, what's something that's happened here since... Since I've been blabbing at us. I think for me, it, it just um, shows that it shows more of my weakness in my in myself. I am not capable alone walking into those dark places mm -hmm. um, and I feel I, I guess I'm going to answer part of your question earlier you know if we if we did have that power to do it ourselves that would just further those dark places and yes. up that pride yeah. of I can do this I don't need a savior uh -huh. um, yeah cool thank you thank you <clears throat> 